welcome back to the Dr. Body Mind Soul podcast. My name is Dr. Jude, and this is a podcast which explores how we can integrate modern medicine and alternative therapies to help you get the holistic health care that you deserve. I will be speaking to healers and seekers, researchers and authors who will share their experiences and the evidence to help guide us all to holistic health. Let's do this. Larry and Belinda Warren are physical therapists who have developed a totally non-invasive, hands-on therapy called Clear Passage for managing infertility secondary to PCOS, endometriosis, and scarred fallopian tubes. And their results have been astounding, being published in several medical journals. And I've invited them onto the podcast today to share with us the methodology of both their approach and the research they've done to show its effectiveness. So welcome, Larry and Belinda. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, I mean, I'm so fascinated by um, a non-invasive approach when it comes to managing um, infertility. And my, my impression from the infertility you are dealing with, it's really actually infertility that may well be detected by the medical model through physical blockages that are found through scar tissue, um, um, either secondary to uh, radiation therapy or previous pelvic inflammatory inflammatory disease. Um, So we're really dealing with uh, a therapy, a non-invasive therapy that can manage physical scars. Am I right in thinking that? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's due to adhesions, which is scar tissue that's usually caused due to surgery or endometriosis or trauma like car accidents um, like that. You're right that a lot of it is detectable by physicians, uh, but a lot is not because adhesions themselves are tiny little um, microscopic strands of collagen at their very base, and they don't show up on X-ray, CT, or MRI. They can actually form within the wall of a uterus, pulling that uterus to one side, making it dysfunctional. It's kind of like it's in this straitjacket, and the doctors can't tell what's going on exactly, but uh, that uterus, you know, does not look symmetrical and something doesn't, doesn't look right there. So. Yes, that's so true. I mean, often adhesions are only ever found when surgeons go in and do either laparoscopic um, work or open surgery. And then it becomes obvious that there are a lot of adhesions pres- present and that can cause all sorts of problems. So, um, infertility being one, um, because it's causing a physical a, a physical uh, block um, between two passages, and also it can cause problems with bowel obstruction. And I think we'll we'll come on to that on a separate podcast episode. Um, but essentially, yeah, I just want to highlight. You know, there's so many causes for infertility, and so often we don't know what's causing what's causing it. Um, so there's lots of idiopathic infertility, which may well be secondary to small or large adhesions from a variety of causes, as you're saying. So tell me, 
what has been your approach? What is the clear passage approach to deal with infertility secondary to adhesions? Well, we started well, we started when Belinda developed adhesions after um, massive radiation therapy, and she was in debilitating pain. We were not actually trying to treat female infertility at all. We were trying to develop a system to decrease the adhesions that formed in her reproductive tract just to get her out of pain. But uh, the what we were trying to do with Belinda was we were really studying adhesions because they're a huge problem in medicine. They are not always detectable. And as we became surprised to be opening blocked fallopian tubes, the chief of staff of a very large hospital nearby, a gynecologist surgeon became fascinated and he said, we need to do some research on this. Uh, we can follow the scientific method, which is something I know you really love and adhere to, and we do, because that's how you find out what's real and what's not. And that's why we've published so much. How do you do it? We have a 550-page training manual, so kind of telling you how we do it is would take a long time. <laughs> so, um, But... Uh, but that is what we are addressing. And in doing that, and we've sort of developed a 20-hour protocol over five days, and that's what all of our studies are based on, uh, we've been able to follow with biostatisticians and PhDs the success rates and develop success rates and see how we're doing it at opening block fallopian tubes, which is is a very um, high success rate, actually higher than, uh, it's as high as surgery and the pregnancy rates are higher. Um, so we can get into all of that later. Mm. But, um, so you're using your hands to almost, and this is very simplistic, I, I you know, I, I'm sure I'm describing this very simplistically, but is this massage, internal massage? Is, is, that, is that fair? And calling it massage is calling like like calling the space shuttle a plane, <laughs> you know, in the way it's massage, but it's it's quite. Um, it's it, more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can you? Is there a way that you know what's the difference between what you do then and massage or visceral manipulation or pelvic floor therapy? Because I guess these are other. Um, modalities that I have heard a little bit about that tries to work with fascia or viscera or yes, scar. Okay. Most of the, uh, most of the pelvic floor therapists that we know and things that they've taught in pelvic floor therapy have to do with muscles and go, let's go ahead and, and tighten that muscle. And let's say you're a two out of five and, go do 300 kegels a day for the next week and come back. Okay, now you're a three out of five. Let's go there. They're not really thinking in terms of the continuity of fascia throughout the body. And we do treat the whole body. Sometimes we'll be on an area and a woman will say, well, I'm feeling that down on the inside of my right knee, or I'm feeling it up here uh, by my, by my heart or by my liver. And so we know that there's a pull up in there because these adhesions form throughout the body. So we're kind of pulling 
out and detaching them wherever we find them, certainly with a great deal of focus on the pelvis, but wherever we find them. So that's a different, I think most pelvic floor therapy talks about entering the pelvis with a finger or two and doing some manipulation, but I have found it to be a bit more mechanical and focused only in, in that area. Visceral manipulation is a very, very, very light. Um, the adhesions that we are, it's not really a focus on adhesions, it is more a focus on motility, if I'm correct. Motility and mobility of the organs. You know, we, we address adhesions and we use a lot more pressure than they teach in the visceral manipulation courses. Mm. Mm. And the medical approach, from my understanding, and this needs to be prefaced with the fact that I'm not an obstetrician or gynecologist, so I, you know, just want to preface preface my understanding as being um, non-specialist. But the 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 medical approach as far as i understand it focuses on dealing with these blockages in a very invasive way through a laparoscopy which is keyhole surgery which is yeah which is in, invasive so to have uh an approach which does not involve surgery and therefore not increase the risk of new adhesions forming sounds like a really good next step. And I'm hearing that you've looked at the effectiveness of your approach against surgical intervention. And can you share with us the results? Because they've been really, really interesting. The um, If someone has blocked fallopian tubes, generally the approach is let's remove those tubes totally and go directly to in vitro fertilization, which um, in the U.S. has just under a 31% success rate. Other countries don't have quite that high. It's as low as 5% in, in places like Japan. Um, if there is one medical procedure to block, to open blocked, approximately blocked tubes, that is, if a tube is blocked right next to the uterus, they can put in a cannula they can put in a balloon cannula and just blow it up and kind of open up that space. And that will generally stay open for about six months. And it gives the patient a window for, um, for becoming pregnant. And when it, uh, when it opens to, and it, and it does a lot, but that's only for approximately blocked. If someone is blocked in the middle or at the end of their tube, they're generally talking about let's remove those tubes totally and go directly to in vitro fertilization. And with the 31% success rate in the US, which is a high one, you can figure maybe three, four IVFs to, to have one child. And then once, if you are successful, then go through it again for a second child. When we open block fallopian tubes and we have it, a 69% success rate if they have never had surgery directly on their tubes. We'll open 69% of them. If they have had surgery directly on their tubes, which is rare, 
Um, it, it, uh, success rates about half of that, about 35%. But once we open tubes, they tend to stay open. And we have had several women that have had two, three, or more successive children. Um, I called one woman to get her uh, story because uh, it was such a good story. She only had one tube and it was blocked. And, and I called her, it had been quite a while back, and I said, can we use your story in, uh, for something? And um, uh, others wanted to know. And she said, yes, and you're my good luck term. And I said, what do you mean? Cause she said, because that was six and a half years ago, and I'm pregnant again with my second child. So from the only tube that she had, and it was totally blocked. So we've had others with, with more, so more um, with successive children. So that's one advantage of sort of a natural way of, as you say, not doing surgery, which can cause more um, and almost always causes irritation. I'm curious that you, you've mentioned, you've mentioned that you have a really, I mean, 71% is, is 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 astounding can you how are you how are you measuring that can you explain your methodology for measuring that sort of success rate are you doing um dye tests before and after your program or mm-hmm. yeah can you can you can you explain how 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 you're deducing such results Absolutely. Yeah. We hired early on, we hired this PhD in a double PhD in histology. What goes on in those tiny spaces in the body where and and histology and disease modeling to say, what is going on? Why are we having this success? So she went through 10 years of our own patients and she took all the ones who were infertile, but the ones who had blocked fallopian tubes had to have a prior test showing total bilateral occlusions. That is, both tubes were totally blocked, or they only had one tube and it was blocked. And then afterwards, they had another test that showed that one or both tubes opened, or they had a natural intrauterine pregnancy, meaning that a tube open because it wouldn't they wouldn't become pregnant otherwise. Then she deduced. Then she asked, "Well, how many did you become pregnant then after after we opened the tubes?" And she got that success rate. So the success rate for so it's very simple actually to get a success rate for opening blocked fallopian tubes. And that averaged 61%, 69, and the ones that had not ever had um, um, a surgery directly on their tubes. Of those whose tubes opened and who responded, 57% became pregnant. So this was a retrospective study. So this is a retrospective analysis. Looking at a 10 year year retrospective. The, it, and right. including the the and including all patients, or only including all patients that had uh, a, a a dye test revealing total occlusion in both tubes, or their only existing tube, 
and then looking at, and they also must have had either a repeat dye test or an intrauterine naturally conceived pregnancy. Is that correct? That's, that's exactly mm. right. That is so fascinating. That's so fascinating. Um, Good. That's so fascinating. She really went overboard. She really went overboard. And she, at the same time, she said, well, while I'm at it, let me look at the ones that had endometriosis and that didn't have blood fallopian tubes. Let me look at the other infertile women and the ones that have high FSH, which was a fascinating one. Um, because those are the elderly, the women who are reproductively uh, approaching or at 40, 41, 42 years of age. And we had a really high success rate among them. Um, and there are other reasons we think that, that that occurred. I can tell you about that if you like. I'm intrigued. Um, okay. So. Each month, as a woman starts to, as her period, as, as her menstrual cycle starts, the ovaries down in the pelvis call on the pituitary gland up in the middle of the head to create, to give me some FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. I have these little follicles in my ovary. I need them to grow and mature into eggs that are usable. So the pituitary emits follicle-stimulating hormone. And that can be measured on pretty consistently on day two through day five of a woman's period. Once a woman's FSH levels are above 10 millimeters, milliliters per international unit, I believe it's called, but above 10, the Doctors say, oh, no, you're reproductively too old to conceive. You will not become pregnant in IVF. I will not accept you into an IVF program, most of them say, because uh, your ovary is calling on your pituitary to produce all this FSH because your reproductive system is old. So the chances of you conceiving are really poor. So we didn't think we could, we never really imagined that we could assist the hormonal aspects of infertility. However, we were with our headache patients treating the coccyx and sort of you have falls on your coccyx from the time you're a kid, you're roller skating or you're ice skating or you fall off your bicycle or your athletic event, your coccyx push forward, it kind of pulls down on the whole dura and pulls down on the cranial bones. So we started treating that area of the body from the tailbone all the way up to the base of the skull and into the cranium. And of the women who would, would have been judged hormonally infertile or subfertile, and all of them would have been refused IVF, 39% of them became pregnant. Um, Virtually all of them naturally. I think one did go for IVF, but uh, there were, God, I don't know how many there were. But so we thought, wow, that's really cool. And I talked to people in, in the women's health department at the local university, and they said, that's great, you know, because when one hormone group starts to improve, the others tend to improve. And we don't know what to do for women 
um, with high FSH here. We can inject it, but to have something like that occur naturally is uh, is a real boon. So, so it kind of widened our scope. So that's why kind of explaining what we do from it's not just a manipulation at the pelvis. It it really is a full body uh, um, um, system. Mm. So that was just one of the other findings that our PhD found when she examined that particular group. And Belinda, and, mm-hmm. and Belinda, right. there were some other unexpected findings. Um, I believe um, that relate to um, the to these treatments. Can you share with us those? Because it's sure. very interesting. Sure. Well, if you think about all the structures that are contained within the pelvis and surrounding the pelvis, we we free whatever we feel has restricted mobility. So we, it's like we gradually peel things apart that are stuck together that shouldn't be. So um, we had a patient, oh God, it was a long time ago, and she called and, and she was sort of embarrassed. And she's like, I don't know how to ask this. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody um, tell you about unusual things that happen to them after they finish your treatment. And I said, well, like what? Can you, can you tell me what you experienced? And she said, well, when my husband and I have been having sex, I've been having toe-curling orgasms like I've never had before. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> and, I, and, and I said, well, is that okay? And she's like, oh, yes, and my husband is very happy. <laughs> wow. So, you know. And again, if if the G spot, you know, in, in a woman's vagina is bound down with adhesions from infections and endometriosis, by freeing those up, the normal you know sexual sensations come back. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so we were talking to our, our medical director, who's a gynecologist, a research gynecologist, and you know, we told him about it and he said, well, that's really important. About 60% of women have some sexual dysfunction. And so we need to do a study on that. So we, so we did, and it was, it was pretty fascinating. You know, our, our results were, yeah, I mean, we had a significantly decreased pain with intercourse, um, increased orgasm or orgasm for women who had never had one. Um, what else? Lubrication, oh, desire. Lubrication. Yeah, it's like arousal. There were six domains they could measure. And we improved all six of those domains of sexual wow. function. Wow. So wow. Wow. Pretty, pretty cool. It's really cool. It's funny. Belinda asked me after about four or five of these women reported that, what should we do with this? And I said, look, honey, we're open block fallopian tubes. We're already the weird practice in town. Just don't even mention it. <laughs> and so um, until we happened to have dinner one night with the chief of staff of the hospital and after a couple of glasses of wine, he said, we, we did mention it. And he said, uh, we need to do a study on that. And I ended up addressing a large group of physicians at the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. There are 9,000 physicians there. So because they all thought, and most doctors think, well, if a woman has pain, 
um, that it's probably in her head and, you know, we just need to tell her to relax or, you know, drink a little wine. She's a numbing cream. Or, oh, yeah. wonderful. So you can't feel anything. Yeah. <laughs> so he said the fact that you could actually decrease pain so significantly, <laughs> and it was something like 89% for decreasing pain, and it's dramatic. I mean, it breaks up families and and couples. Yeah. The fact that they when people can't have, uh, can't have intercourse. intercourse. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And it's totally disconnecting for for a woman to experience herself. It's it's so it's so important. It's and it really connects us with our with our life force and our creativity that that just spills out in all aspects of our life. So, yeah, it's a really it's really nice to hear. It's really good to hear. It's really important to hear that actually there are options, and this is what this podcast is all about: is exploring different options that are available that doctors don't necessarily know about um, so that we can um, yeah so that so that people have choice and I think that's that's really important um, so you've mentioned that the program is a 20 hour five day intensive can you just walk me through what that would actually look like for a patient coming to see you uh, sure. Well, you know, we suggest that patients arrive on Sunday evening and they come in for the week. So they're treated Monday through Friday. Uh, they come in, um, they're pretty much at the clinic most of the day, nine to four, nine to five. And they, they initially have a, a very detailed initial evaluation, physical evaluation to you know, to, to see what what kinds of problems they're having. And then we design a, a treatment program based on their needs. And so uh, they come in for two hours of treatment in the morning and two hours of treatment in the afternoon with at least a one-hour lunch break in between. And then um, at some point during the week, we'll take about uh, 30 minutes of one session to teach them a home exercise program and self-treatment techniques. So they'll know enough things when they go home that they can continue to work on themselves and continue to make progress, you know, and, and they'll know things to do for themselves uh, to maintain, you know, improvements that we gain during the week of therapy. Mm. And can you walk me through what uh, session would look like because it feels like yeah what, what would that look like is that like a two-hour internal exam is it one one-on-one is it two-on-one like what 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 is the setup yeah. there's the therapist and the patient and um the internal treatment is just a portion of the treatment you know most of the treatment is external but, you know, the internal vaginal treatment is important to make sure that the tailbone is mobile, that there's no spasm in the pelvic floor muscles. Um, and, you know, we, we address all the reproductive structures and, you know, we treat the, the pelvis, we treat their, their sacrum, their low back. Um, so it's comprehensive, it's external as well as internal. So it's all hands-on. I mean, we don't use any machines. It's just hands-on treatment techniques. And you were mentioning before that, you know, although there's an internal pelvic 
um, proportion of the treatment and there's an external pelvic proportion, actually you're looking at the entire body because our, you know, because fascia, scar, scar tissue that is pulling on fascia, fascia connects organs and structures throughout its matrix all over the body. So it's really important. So I'm really hearing that there's an acknowledgement that different structures may be affected and may be held um, and affected from the scar tissue down in the pelvis so you can manipulate elsewhere in the body and have an impact in the pelvis itself. Yeah, I mean, the pelvis is the foundation for the rest of the spine. And so, you know, we we start most sessions making sure that the pelvis is level, that their legs are even, and then, you know, we we do the, the treatment techniques. But uh, it is a full body technique because, like you said, the, the fascia runs from head to toe and front to back. Um, we're not just a bunch of parts stuck together. Mm-hmm. So what's going on in the pelvis can cause headaches. Um you know, leg pain can cause symptoms of the pelvis. So we we address the whole body in our treatments. Mm. Mm. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. Um, I would never, when I see patients who come in with a headache, um, it certainly not doesn't uh, enter my mind that there could be uh, that that could relate to anything going on in the pelvis. And it makes me curious. Look at the pelvis. Yeah. Look at the pelvis. And it makes me curious. Do you experience or have you had any feedback from your patients around? I know you've mentioned sexual function, but I'm wondering, do you notice patients? having emotional experiences um, through the treatments that oh, yes. they have with you. Mm. Oh, yes. Can you explain? Yeah, um, you know, we treat a lot of women who have been raped and molested. And when we treat the areas of the body that were affected when they were emotionally traumatized, those emotions come out. So we, we dialogue them through that. Um, it, you know, it's important to get those emotions out of that energy out of the body. So it, it comes up frequently. It comes up. Frequently. One of the things, one of the things I love that Belinda says to patients, and I've started saying it to them early on in the week is mm-hmm. imagine yourself walking out of here on Friday afternoon with exactly the body you came here for see what you're wearing, see what the temperature is like. Imagine yourself with all the capabilities that you want to have for the rest of your life so that you can just create your vision and step into it. Let's let that be your goal for this week and let's go there together. Be specific about your goal and let's go there. And it's it's just amazing how People leave behind so much of the garbage that's that's been laid upon them and start stepping into their new vision for their lives. So kudos there's to you. Al- there's almost like a yeah, there's almost like an emotional and sort of spiritual 
less, I mean, it's a spiritual experience with that. So allowing the emotions that get trapped in the body, especially when the body has experienced trauma directly to that area and allowing the body to release the emotion that has been held within the physical tissue to let go of that's so powerful it's so so powerful so healing absolutely yes definitely and i think that that gets lost i think in in the medical model when we're just meeting the physical body with with a physical body or an instrument actually um without the context that you know this could mean so much on an emotional level we lose that that element um that relationship that that um that deeply healing process that actually i think you'll find or i think may explain in part in part the success that you have because healing comes within relationship and if you feel you're being deeply cared for and sure there's 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 a physical explanation for how this process is working and reducing the in reducing you know the molecular bonds between adhesions but there's such an important piece i think to allowing the emotions that are being held within, especially the pelvis for women, especially in those who have been traumatized so violently and so, um, so deeply. Um, It's really such a piece that I don't think can be overlooked. And of course that can't be studied in in the scientific methodology that we currently use. and that's not captured, but I'm really intrigued and feel intuitively that that must be such an important piece in this puzzle that may explain the drastically different results that you are getting. Yeah, you know, the, when we when we train therapists and, and we when we people for training, one of the primary things we look for is, do you know how to listen? Do you know how to listen and really hear what a patient is saying so that when that patient comes in, whoever it is, we want them to be part of the process. We want to listen so deeply that when they say, oh, you know, that reminds me of the time I was 12 years old and I slid into base or did a gymnastic. We can say, well, what about that? And then we can relate it to that. Or then something comes up, you start to notice them starting to cry a little bit or you get whimpering and you can ask a little bit. We, we kind of open the door without pushing them through, but to allow them to bring their own story and be, be active members of their own healing process. It's a, it's such a wonderful thing. So, so much of modern medicine, as you have alluded to, I think, is kind of like taking your car in to get it repaired. Well, that's not it. You know, there's a sentient, living, caring, often wounded human being in there who would like to be able to express herself 
and be able to create some of her vision and know that it's okay to create her vision for where she wants her life and just wants a hand to help help say, yeah, yeah, create your vision and step into it. Yeah, absolutely. A, a space to allow, an ex, a, a space to express, um, and a space to be held in the grief and sadness and um, helplessness that I think so many women experience when they are dealing with infertility. Um, And I think it's often in the holding of those emotions within us um, because these emotions are so poorly tolerated by society as a whole and then ourselves that so much healing on all of the levels, so emotional, psychological, and then, of course, the physical. The physical body then is able to relax and let go because the emotion has been fully expressed. Um, It's only when an emotion is stopped um, in its its, uh, full expression because it's too big does it then get stored within the body um, and then cause adhesions cause scars. Um, I'm seeing that intuitively. I don't have evidence of that. And yet I think there is a growing school of thought that we are holding on to our psychological and emotional traumas within the body. And it's causing physical manifestations of pain um, in particular. I think that's the most researched area to date yeah might want to say a little bit about endometriosis if you like sure because it's such an important thing for so many women just like with black fallopian tubes i mean as i said we were not originally attempting to treat infertility or to open black fallopian tubes it just happened to us and we were very long time ago 30 years ago we were believe just belinda and i treating these patients um, this woman said, you know, I just can't believe my period came. We said, what do you mean? Well, you know, usually I'm on the floor for two or three days when my period comes and you you treated me and I had no pain at all. You know, I just it was it was just amazing when my period came, you know, because I have endometriosis. And, and we said, oh, OK, that's good. And she left and we turned to each other and said, what's endometriosis? <laughs> Because we didn't know what endometriosis <laughs> was. This was a long time ago. So we started, and all we knew is, so we subsequently at some point were invited because we started publishing on that because we were seeing good results treating it. And we were invited to a, um, a conference of world experts on endometriosis from around the world. And I stood up and I said, does anyone in this August group, there were about 400 physicians there, have we pinpointed where the pain comes from with endometriosis? And there was total silence in the room. And Alice Domar, Dr. Domar from Harvard, was a couple rows in front of us, turned to me and said, we don't know. And I, I just wanted to say, well, we do, because all we are treating is, is adhesions. We know that. We know that wherever, however, and for whatever reason, endometrial implants form in areas outside the uterus, adhesions are generally there. 
And kind of like the book Gulliver's Travels, where the guy was tied down by these Lilliputians with these little strings. But we, we envision that adhesions form between the endometrial implant and the tissue that they're lying on. So then when it swells each month, as it does, whether it's in the uterus or in the rest of the body, it pulls on those strands and causes a tremendous amount of pain for a lot of women. What all we know how to do, frankly, is break those strands and detach those strands. But when we do, we see dramatic improvements and decreases in endometriosis pain and improvements in uh, endometriosis-related infertility. So that's why we think that the mechanical aspect of adhesions are really important in endometriosis. And it's really, at this conference, the, the main question was, how do we diagnose endometriosis? And out of all 400 doctors, they decided at the end of the conference that the only way they could diagnose it was to do surgery so that they could visualize it. So they were, and they only wanted to measure pain. They didn't want to measure quality of life. And I thought, well, darn, that's too bad because, you know, we know about surgery and adhesions. And when you burn it, it often comes back and sometimes worse than before. So, but um, I just wanted to kind of give that additional insight of how adhesions can affect other areas of the body and um, and sort of an insight into where endometriosis pain, we believe, comes from. So I mean, endometriosis is really thought to be an inflammatory, an, an inflammatory, there's a strong inflammatory process within endometriosis mm-hmm. and adhesions are the result of any inflam- inflammatory process. They're sort of a chronic, they're secondary to a chronic inflammation. So that's where adhesions then come. So it makes total sense to me that adhesions would yeah. be would be a part of um endometriosis and therefore a part of endometrial pain um so i can really really make sense to me that that would uh that that that, that by breaking those down in some way would ease the discomfort um the discomfort and so i mean you've, you're dealing with endometriosis you're dealing with infertility i know you're dealing with um adhesions relating to bowel as well. I mean, what else are you dealing with? You sound as if you are really on um, quite the mission. Tell me what is next in store for you. Well, after, uh, so after opening, people read studies where we had opened black fallopian tubes, they started calling us asking if we could open larger tubes, the bowel, the intestines, because surgery for bowel obstruction, bowel obstructions, when the intestines are closed by adhesions is life-threatening. It turns out to be the second most common emergency surgery in the United States, certainly, and the one with the most complications because when you cut the bowel, if a little drop of it leaks out before the doctor seals you back up, these bacteria find themselves in this warm, moist, dark environment and go, wow, we can proliferate here. This is home. So you get peritonitis. We have to open them up. So about one out of five go back into the hospital within 30 days, um, the studies show. So, so we started treating that. And then when we were, one of our physicians was out in California 
at a conference and um, was telling someone the story that I was telling you about follicle stimulating hormone and manipulating these areas up here and the pituitary started functioning so much better and we have good data on that and this neurosurgeon which is a brain surgeon turned to him and said well what about parkinson's and he said what do you mean he said well if they can help uh if they can help the pituitary can they help decrease pressure at the substantia nigra where parkinson's start which is about a centimeter away from the pituitary, can they do that? So I'd love to examine that before because it would be wonderful to help people with Parkinson's. Um, so I'm 75 now, um, <laughs> but I still have a little bit of life left in me and I want wow. to investigate that. I don't know. What about you? <laughs> I think we've bitten off enough to chew. <laughs> <laughs> Belinda, you want to retire. Yeah, I mean, why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Larry, <laughs> listen to your wife. <laughs> but that is fascinating, as in thinking about thinking about how to how to it's fascinating for me to think working with structures like the fascia which actually is a which actually is an organ which is so much more focused within for example chinese medical systems i mean that's a, an organ the fascia is considered a really important organ and it's what is manipulated in acupressure acupuncture and um, because it is known to be such a powerful entry into the systems of the body and yet it is an organ and I'm calling it an organ um, within the body um, that the western paradigm really doesn't pay much attention to um, other than other than um, its very structural compartmentalization um, within the body, and surgeons are really the only ones that actually manipulate um, fascia um, when they are doing surgery. So it's really interesting to hear you as physical therapists manipulating the fascia, which goes on to have very full body impacts that not only help to reduce pain directly on adhesions and where they are in the body, but also in other parts of the body, but also then improve the function of the body. So actually allowing a bit more space and a bit more, um, a bit more space around the organs like they should have, which then allows them to function um function better so this is really fascinating um fascinating and and uh yeah as i said before i really thank you for doing all the work you have done and uh i look forward to talking to you more about um any ongoing work that you are doing and larry i really want you to pay attention to having a holiday seems like you are an absolute workhorse <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you so much for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom um, here with us and across the medical community. Um, as I said before, this is so important that we build bridges between disciplines. Um, 
and that we start to understand who is doing what work in the world so the medical profession are able to refer to other disciplines when their treatments may not be the best um, treatment for that particular patient. It's great to hear there are options, um, especially non-invasive options um, that may be possible for women dealing with what can be a very um, emotive, very helpless, very, um, very important uh, diagnosis that they are that they're when that they're given so thank you so much for being with me today thank if, you so much for having us we, if if people are interested and want to know more they should go to our website which is clearpassage.com there's an apply now button or get more information we ask people to complete a medical history form it takes about 20 minutes we review everyone. It doesn't cost you anything to do that, to have it reviewed. And we'll just tell you what we think. You know, if we think we can help, we'll say so. If we don't, we'll say so. Absolutely. But uh, that would be one thing we would suggest. I, we wrote, I wrote a 600-page book. We, Belinda and I wrote a shorter one called Adhesions, um, which is available now at Amazon. Um, so it delves a little bit more into adhesions and um, there's a picture of Belinda on the front of it, but uh, she looks great. <laughs> I, look, I look very angry. She, she's supposed to look a little angry. Scowling uh, at the adhesions. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> go to clearpassage.com or give us a call if you like. But thank you so much. And I will take her on a vacation. <laughs> and just before we wrap up, um, you're obviously based in Florida. Do you have any trained practitioners um, elsewhere in the world who have done your program or is it um, solely based in the U.S. for now? We have seven locations in the U.S., one or two in England. Occasionally we'll send someone down under to Australia or to New Zealand to treat patients. So we're looking to expand Slowly, I need to hand. We try to handpick only the top therapists, the ones that we think are are going to be successful. Because you know, you want to have a baby, you want to save your life because you've got bowel obstructions. These are serious things. So um, we try to train hand. We work hard to handpick great people, but uh, so we're slowly growing. So the growing so mainly in the. Mm -hmm. So if there are people um, in here in the UK, um, we can find out where the therapists who've trained with you are on your website. Am I right? You're right. Yes. Great. Great. That's super. Thank you so much. I'll put all the details of your website on the show notes. So please refer to um, them if you would like to get in touch. And I thank you again for the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening, Body, Mind, Soul Seekers. If you want to connect with trusted alternative therapists, learn more about what they do and how they can help you, check out my new holistic healthcare platform, The Witchy Women. Or if you are a holistic healer that wants to serve and help more people, book in a discovery call with me. Find more details at thewitchywomen.com. To show your support for this podcast, please share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. 
Thank you all so much. Until next time.